2 Timothy chapter 1, please. 2 Timothy chapter number 1. Welcome to all of you. It is nice to have you here. I realize that, especially for some of the younger ones, minds are busy with other things. As I mentioned in Sunday school, just it's Sunday, and of course, it's the Lord's Day that dominates. It's Christmas Eve, and the weather feels like April, not December. I just generally feel very unsettled. The, The day's routine is out of whack. The weather is out of whack. But anyway, the Lord is on his throne, and all is well. Let's go ahead and stand, please. We're going to read the first 12 verses of 2 Timothy Chapter number one. Second Timothy one one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God. From whom I serve from my for, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with thy joy. When I call to remember the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God, who hath saved us, And called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And let's pray. Father, thank you for those like Paul who have faithfully preached the word. Thank you for those who hold fast to sound doctrine, to those who are believers in and committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you above all for Christ, 
Thank you, Father, for giving us a perfect Savior. And Father, we do thank you for this respite from the year's normal activities. And we pray that in the busyness of the days ahead, we would not forget you or our salvation. And I pray this for us in Christ's name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, nothing that is ever said about the Bible or the gospel, either the advent, the first arrival of Christ, nothing like that is ever placed, not the resurrection, not the crucifixion. None of it is ever dealt with biblically in a holiday framework. The holidays came later. The public recognition and celebrations of both the incarnation and the resurrection of Christ. And of course, we all know that over the course of time, these celebrations become more cultural than they do Christian if one is not careful. To the world in which we live, the country in which we live, to where even say something like Merry Christmas is politically questionable and liable to get you a severe tongue lashing, if not criminal charges. For us, the ministry of Christ is not a holiday. It is the anchor of our very existence. And I simply wish to remind us this morning about... who Christ is, and what he has done for us. The passage takes a perspective that, whether he was knowing or not, I do not know, that Charles Dickens brings to the Christmas carol. In the passage that we read this morning, Paul deals with the past and the present and the future of Christianity and the work and practice of Christ. When Paul writes this letter, he knows that he is at the end of his life. He is in jail. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I am being ready to be poured out. I am in the process of being poured out as a drink offering. My life in this world is over. Timothy, I hope that you can get here before I die. That is what Paul really wants, to see Timothy one last time. And he encourages him, of course, to be faithful to God as Paul has been faithful to God. That is, verse number 8, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. Not, Not ashamed of Christ and not ashamed of Christians who stand with Christ. But instead, share the hardships together with me that come with the gospel. Things that quite honestly, and this is really not a part of the message this morning, that have been foreign to most of us practicing Christianity in America for most of American history. It remains to be seen, and I think we know that. 
It remains to be seen what the next year or two will bring and whether or not we will be truly tested for the presence of our faith. I wish to call our attention this morning primarily to verses 9, 10, and 11, and 12. Paul writes from jail, expecting a soon execution, hoping to see Timothy. Do not be ashamed of me. Do not be ashamed of Christ. Embrace whatever hardships Christianity brings because because of something that happened in the past. That's verse number 9. We are saved, partakers of the afflictions of the gospel, the good news according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's pretty far back. That's past. Before the world ever began, God gave us his grace in Jesus Christ. It is a grace that saves because it is saving grace, verse 9. He has saved us. Before the world began, there was a saving grace that came to people through Jesus Christ. And it is a grace that not only saves but calls to holiness because holiness is the very essence of salvation. And unholiness is the very essence of being lost. We are trespassers. We are disobedient. We are transgressors. We are unholy by our very nature. It is the core of being an unbeliever to be unholy in the presence of a holy God. God saves us through Christ from our sin and its power. He saves us from the sin that we love and he saves us from loving that sin. It is a holy calling. It is a call to holiness. And it is also, according to verse number 9, a true grace. It is not according to our works, but it comes from his purpose, from his unmerited favor that he had for us from prior to our very creation. One of the great marvels and mysteries, folks, is that before God ever made humanity, he made a way to recover humanity to save humanity. And this is, of course, in Christ, verse number 9, which was given us in Christ. And it was given us in Christ because Christ is the mediator of our new covenant. God gives us all the good things that he has for us through Christ. And our access to God the Father then comes backwards through Christ. And who is Christ? He is Jehovah in a human body. In the mystery of mysteries, in the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of godliness, God's anointed was made visible in the flesh. And again, this happened, folks, before the world began, before we could be known or know anything, before we could recognize or be recognized. The riches of God came to us through Christ 
because of God's eternal purpose. Which, if well we had was verse number 9, might cause us then to raise this question. How would we know that? If this is something that God had done for us from prior to the foundation of the world, how would we know it? And that is why in verses 10 and 11 and 12, Paul moves from the past to the present. That which God had done from the foundation of the world must be made known, verse number 10, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles for which cause I also suffer these things. From eternity past in which the grace of God was shown to us and given to us By God's purpose in Christ, this is now made known. It is made visible. Let me take just a moment, if I could please, and talk about that word manifest in verse number 10. But is now made manifest. In Mark 16, 12, the end of Mark's gospel, it is said of Jesus, after that he appeared. There's the word. He appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. What we call one of the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. Christ appeared. They saw him. They could see him. They talked to him. Or John chapter 2 and verse number 11, this beginning of miracles did Jesus of Cana in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth, there's that word again, manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him How did he put his glory on display? How was it seen? He took common, ordinary water and turned it into wine. And he appeared. John 21.1, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he himself. This is how he appeared. When the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. And he sent unto them, cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. That's how he showed it. That is how he showed it. So back to 2 Timothy 1.10, but now is made manifest, now is seen by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, God did not simply say those things in verse number 9. God did not simply think verse number 9. God showed verse number 9. God put it out there to be seen. The appearing. He is made apparent. He is made apparent by the epiphany of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He sent him. He sent his Son. This is the event that we are celebrating this holiday. 
the appearing of Christ, the advent, the epiphany, the appearance of God in a human body. Paul goes on not simply to explain the fact that he appeared, but what happened when he did appear. What happened when Christ did appear? Before the world ever came into existence, God showed us his grace in Christ. And then Christ appeared. Here is what he did. Verse number 10. He abolished death. He abolished death. He rendered it unemployed. He took away its effect. He made it useless. It doesn't mean that there isn't still human death. Although Jesus did say to his disciples... That if we believed on him, we would not taste it. We would not have even the taste of it in our mouths. Means to abolish, to cease, to end, to be set free from. But I would caution you folks against thinking of this only in a physical sense. Our bodies are going to die. An almost undeniable fact unless we are in that body of people who are taken away before we die, which we all hope. But so have all the dead believers to this point. But let me encourage you folks in verse number 10, now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality. Don't think of this only or primarily in physical terms. Think of it in spiritual terms. Because the greatest death that we face is not the death of the body, but the fact that we are spiritually dead. And what you, if you want to know what it's like to be spiritually dead, I would refer you back to Ephesians chapter 2. But you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. When God warned Adam and Eve that their disobedience would bring death, their bodies did not instantly die when they disobeyed. But they instantaneously became dead in trespasses and sins. They were trespassers, folks. And by the way, right? I mean, what does it mean to be a trespasser? To be a trespasser is just that. When I was growing up as a child, we lived on a corner lot. It was a very modest neighborhood. My dad was an over-the-road truck driver. It was a functional house. Three bedrooms, one bath, no basement, no air conditioning. That was the neighborhood. There were a couple of houses that were a little bit nicer, but that was how we all lived, and everybody just had a great time. And, but, you know, nobody lived in a mansion. Nobody was under any illusions, folks. This wasn't a regal neighborhood. And our neighbors to the right were a little bit unusual, but nice enough people. And the people to our left of us, now this was the view of a young child, but I thought he was an absolute ogre. He kept a very nicely manicured lawn, perfect lawn, perfect garden. I was just a kid. I played baseball. I played football. We played baseball and football in the backyard. And it was not uncommon for one of our balls to end up in his backyard, but you weren't allowed to trespass. So if one of my baseballs or one of my footballs ended up in his yard, 
I was completely at his mercy and dependent upon his grace to return it, which he was not inclined to do very often. And so I thought he was an ogre. But I very clearly understood from my parents' instructions that I was not allowed to trespass, to leave my yard to go into his yard to recover my goods. When Adam and Eve sinned, folks, they became trespassers and they were evicted from the Garden of Eden because they no longer had a right to be there. They were trespassers. They were dead in their sins. They were dead in their sins. Christ has abolished death. He has put an end to people being spiritually dead and hath given instead life and immortality. When you read First or Second Timothy 1.10, folks, don't think primarily in terms of your body. Think primarily and firstly in terms of your soul. What does it mean that from the foundation of the world, God showed you his kindness through the grace of Jesus Christ. He saved you. That's what Paul's talking about. Our salvation. Our deliverance from our condemnation. Our being granted eternal life. And this is then the gospel. He brought them to light through the gospel. That which God had done in eternity past, verse number 9, he brought to light through the persons of Christ, person of Christ and the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. So that Paul will say, I'm a preacher. Paul doesn't say, and now I'm that savior. Paul says, I'm the preacher. I'm the one who proclaims that message that Christ abolishes death and confers immortality and life. Paul will say later in the book, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Not that his gospel brings it about, but that his gospel is the testimony of that work. Christ died. Christ rose. Death abolished. Life available. And in fact, folks, if you look at the passage more closely, you will notice that Paul continues to suffer in his body for the message of the cross. So that his primary thinking cannot be the abolition of physical death. I am now ready to be offered in the time of my departure is at hand. Nevertheless, I have life. I have life. Paul writes in verse number 12, for the which cause I also suffer these things. And the record of Paul's sufferings as a gospel preacher is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So the abolition of death, folks, that we find in verse number 10 has not yet been brought to consummation, has it? The sting of death may be gone, but the fact of death remains. 
that does not trouble Paul and it should not trouble us for Paul moves from the past in verse number 9 to the present, verses 10 and 11, to the future, verse number 12. For which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. So prior to the foundation of the world, God gave us his grace through Jesus Christ. And yet Christ must come, and Christ must die, and that message must be known, and so the gospel must be preached, and men must believe it. Paul did. Timothy did. He's already said, Paul's already expressed his opinion that Timothy's faith is genuine. And Paul now turns to his certainty, I know whom I have believed, not what I have believed. Not, I know the content of what the gospel message is, although he did. Not that I know the content of many Bible verses, which he did, but who? I know who I have believed. He is persuaded then of the reliability of the person. I know whom I have believed. And I believe then that, I am a, that he is able to keep safe. To which we could then ask this question. Well, what, what have you given him, Paul? What is he keeping safe for you? And the answer, I think, folks, to that ought to be obvious. The salvation of his soul. And he is able to keep safe what I have entrusted to him against that day. And I want to come back and revisit that. It wasn't terribly long ago that we that I worked through first and second Timothy and Titus in our evening services. And I went back to look at what I had written about the end of verse number twelve. What is that day? What is that day? And I had said then that I thought that that day was judgment that he had kept safe that day the judgment. And I think it includes the judgment because the judgment is certainly a part of this. But I don't think that it's the main part of what Paul is thinking. I think within the framework of what Paul is actually saying at that moment, the closest thing that we could connect it to is the abolition of death. I mean, here's Paul... Right? Here's Paul waiting to die. That's the framework of the whole book. Paul is in jail. He knows he's going to die. He's waiting to die. He's ready to die. What is he writing? Christ has abolished death. Christ has abolished death. What day? The day when death finally does get abolished. It is 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy 4.8, also known the day of his appearing. The day of judgment, the day of his appearing, the day when death is abolished. This, folks, is, let me, 
let me not bog down in the minutia. Let me get to this. In verse number 10, the appearance of Christ is his first coming. And in verse number 12, that day is his second coming. That's what's being discussed. The second coming. The day for which we are waiting. The day that Paul expected. The day that Paul brought up regularly to all of the churches. Now let me talk to you, Paul basically would say, now let me talk to you about some of the things that you should be doing while we're waiting for the Lord to return. Or let me talk to you about the things you need to stop doing while we're waiting for the Lord to return. The second coming. At the second coming, folks, will be the abolition of death, 1 Corinthians 15. So for us, Christmas is not simply a time to be together with family, although most of us will. It is not just simply something about gift giving, although gifts are given and exchanged. For us, Christmas is the orientation of our present life. Verses 9, 10, 11, 12. Not ashamed of Christ. Bracing ourselves to endure whatever sufferings come with Christianity. Because we know the one who before the foundation of the world gave us his grace in Christ. And we know that he is coming back again. And I think, folks, one of the things that really does make our celebration of Christmas different from the world is just that, is that ours includes the realization that he is coming again. Not just that he came in the past, but that he is coming again. Again, Titus calls it, or Paul calls it in Titus, the blessed hope and his glorious appearing. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you that before you ever created the world, it was your purpose to show us your gracious salvation in the person and work of Christ. And thank you that that determination became visible in the reality of Christ's appearance on earth and in the proclamation of the gospel message. And thank you that you may be trusted, that we may commit our souls to you and you will keep them faithfully until you appear the second time. A blessed Christmas indeed. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.